today we are going to discuss what is the purpose of man? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does image of God even mean? And what are the roles and responsibilities for us as image bearers? And then one question that you may or may not have ever thought of is where might our souls come from? And what's the difference between a soul and the spirit, or is there? So we're going to go a little deeper on some of those things today. So let me pray for us and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you decided to not just create us, but to create us in your image, that we could reflect you to the world, that we could become more like you in our character, and God, that we could even receive glory like you one day in heaven, Lord. God, I just pray that we would be amazed in who you are and how you've made us as we study man and, and personhood today in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So I begin by saying people are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are the most amazing part of God's creation. Why do you think we could say that? Why is man considered the pinnacle of creation? We are the pinnacle of his creation because we are the only thing he created in his image. We already studied angels and we learned angels are not created in his image. Animals are not created in his image. So even though the rest of creation brings glory to him and, and represents him in certain ways, we are the only ones created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So both males and females are created in God's image equally. We are equally in the image of God. We are both image bearers. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. It does not mean we are gods, right? That's what can get confusing. We are not gods, but we are like God in some ways and we represent God to the world. God planned to make a creature like himself. So the two Hebrew words, the word, Hebrew word for image, and the Hebrew word for likeness actually refer to something that is similar, but not identical to the thing it represents. So we are similar to God, but we are not the exact image of God. Jesus said he is the exact image of God the Father. We cannot claim that. We, when it says image, it means similar, but not identical. Okay, so that's how we know. That's also why we are not gods ourselves. So the original readers would have understand this distinction. And when it says, let us make man to be like us and to represent us, that's how they would have interpreted it. Let us, like, let us make man to be like us, to represent us. So the expression image of God refers to every way in which man is like God. And it's not just believers that are made in the image of God, right? Every single person that's created is an image bearer of God. James 3, 9 says that people in general are made in the likeness of God. Genesis 9, 6 says this. I mean, this might seem off on a side, but listen to this. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. People were allowed to die if they murdered someone because they were murdering someone that was in the image of God. 
So even in our sinfulness, we still represent the image of God so much that if someone was to murder that image bearer, think of it this way, it's like actually doing it to God himself. If you murder a person that's an image of God, it is like murdering God himself. Wouldn't that equal needing to be murdered, right? Or being killed. So in what ways are we made in the image of God specifically? Okay, we're made to be like him in many ways. The first one is in our moral capacity. We are the only thing created that has a moral aspect. We are creatures, we are morally held accountable before God for our actions. God requires us to imitate his own moral purity. We say that in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. So we were made as moral creatures. Second, we have mental aspects. Our mentality, our mind was created similar to God's in the sense that we can use abstract reasoning. We can understand philosophical concepts. We use abstract language. We have the complexity of human emotions. We can understand ethical problems. And we're continuing to develop greater skills. Think of things like technology, agriculture, science, but also creativity and art and music, literature, other inventions. This is all how God made us because he is a creator and he made us to create, right? And then there's the relational aspects. We're different than all other creation relationally as we've seen in human marriage. We're the only ones that get married even though animals procreate, (laughs) we are actually called to get married. That's biblical. We are called to rule over creation as God did. Unlike anything else in creation, we have the ability to grow and become more like God. We can become more like God where animals cannot become more like God. Creation cannot become more like God, but we can because we are made in the image of God. Every single person deserves human dignity. And maybe that's easier to say yes to as a follower of Jesus, but in the honesty of our hearts, there might be some people we don't really want to show human dignity to, right? Depending on how evil they are or how hurtful they have been. But yet God says, if everyone is made in the image of God, every person deserves human dignity, whether they're marred by sin, illness, weakness, age, or other disabilities. They still have a status of being one of God's image bearers, so they must be treated with respect and dignity. That means people in prison still needed to be treated with respect and dignity. Terrorists that we take into our country still need to be treated with respect and dignity. I mean, that is hard to fathom, but that is what God is saying when it comes to being image bearers. This is true of race and ethnicity, right? That we are all image bearers of God, not one more than the other. This is true of the unborn. They deserve full protection and honor as human beings. So I want to pause and ask you this. Why do you think it's dangerous to not see people as image bearers? What is the danger when we don't see people as image bearers? It is amazing the laws that are being created that do not value life around the world, especially in European countries and are coming to America. Mm -hmm. If you were to research, they now have where you can just say, I'm depressed. I just want to end my life. Mm -hmm. And all you need is one other person to say, yeah, I think they'd be better. It would end their misery if they were allowed to take a suicide pill. They just need one other person to say they can do that. And you're allowed to take a pill legally and commit suicide by, by doctors. Now, there's, there's laws where 
a baby can be born and you are allowed to terminate that child, let's put it that way, up to 28 days. So that, that baby is not a human now outside the womb until the 29th day, until they're almost one month old. I mean, this is, this is even greater than just saying that it's a fetus and it's not a baby. This is now clearly a baby living and breathing. They're allowed to make a decision on this baby's life up to 28 days. This is unbelievable, you know? And so we, we need to realize there's a huge loss in valuing life because of this. Euthanasia, oh, you're old, you're racking up doctor bills, let's just release your life. It just news right in, in another country of a, of a child and the parents fought in the courts to keep this child alive because the child had a terminal illness and the doctor said, no, this child's not worth living. And the courts agreed and they had to watch them t- take this child, who was it, eight years old or younger, and they were not allowed as parents to say the child had the right to live until the child did die from the terminal illness. It is unbelievable. It is almost out of our hands sometimes in how courts, and, and it's coming to America. It is in America. And so we need to really keep considering and discipling one another and reminding one another we are all made in the image of God because the world does not believe that and the world is living like they don't believe that. In their depravity, they have justified things in their mind and started down a path and they are blinded to their sin, you know? And to, we need to pray for their salvation because some of these people are murdering a lot of people, right? Or a lot of babies or a lot of different things and are making decisions for countries or states that are not valuing life. And so we need to pray for these people. We need to pray that God would open their eyes because if they came to Christ, they would be making different decisions, right? So again, whenever you're again, when, when you think it's Hamas taking your family and holding them captive, you're like, they need Jesus. Put a vision, Get, show them, because have them repent because that's our only hope of change. But we also know we are allowed to pray for justice that, okay, Lord, if they don't change, they are gonna have a lot of judgment on the other side, right? So the, justice will happen, but we do need to pray for every person salvation that are really evil you know and that's how we have to try to think through it um yeah Kristen so in wading through them systematic um theology um I read this last night and and I have a question about it it says that um he says that Genesis Genesis 9-6 affirms that people generally not just believers are quote in God's image end quote. And James three nine says that people in general quote are made in the likeness of God end quote. Mm-hmm. So, what to me that's a qualifier of sorts to say in general they're made in mm-hmm. the likeness of God. Mm-hmm. Or generally speaking, mm-hmm. um, so it's like well who isn't then? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't, I wasn't sure how to resolve that well he's saying in general because you think about okay we all have a moral capacity even hamas or whoever we want to give an example but they've chosen depravity they've chosen this the state right and so there is going to be a judgment for how we deal with our morality right on either way so they are made as they have mental aspects how are they going to use the mind god gave them what's the technology going to be is it going to be for war or to help people right so we see even in these or relational aspects instead of it being in a healthy relationship and healthy community it could be manipulation and control and they're learning 
dynamics, right? So, so it's taking things God gave them that are like his image, but they're warping it because there's evilness. So we want to just keep thinking what could change if people understood they were image bearers, right? And, and the value of life. And how can we keep talking about the value of life in the conversations we have with others? I think we're used to talking about that, about the unborn, but now there's so many more conversations we could be having about the value of life. A fourth area in how we're made in the image of God is spiritual aspects. We have immaterial spirits. So we can act in ways that are significant in the immaterial spiritual realm of existence. We have a spiritual life. We can relate to God through praise, through prayer, through reading the word, and we are all immortal. So no matter who we are, every person made in the image of God is immortal. Animals are not immortal, but human beings are, okay? And so this is also how we take on, just like God is immortal, we are immortal. We will never cease to exist now that we have been created. So we're going to look at the topic of what is a soul and a spirit. And are these two things different or are they interchangeable? They, they pretty much mean the same thing. And there's two views out there. The first view is called trichotomy. And trichotomy is the view that man is made of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, the hot, hence the tri, right? Tri means three. So body, soul, and spirit is trichotomy. And this idea actually originated not in the Bible, but from Greek philosophy. So those who believe body, soul, and spirit are separate are getting those ideas from Greek philosophy. Now, the other one is called dichotomy. Di means two. So that is where man is made of two parts, body and we would say soul slash spirit, meaning they mean pretty much the same thing. And I'm going to show you how in scripture. And this is the more common view of evangelicals. Some people are trichotomists that are evangelical scholars, but most scholars are dichotomists and believe that these two, it's just two things. And this is because scripture often uses soul and spirit interchangeably. So I'm going to show you how they do that. So here's Jesus in John 12, 27. He says, my soul is troubled. But then the next chapter, John 13, 21, it was said of Jesus that he was troubled in his spirit. So Jesus said, my soul is troubled. And then when someone was writing about him, they said his spirit was troubled. So they're using it interchangeably within one chapter from each other. Mary uses both words when she's describing her soul in Luke 1, 46 and 47. Here's what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So the soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my Savior. So this is what is called Hebrew parallelism. It's pretty much saying the same thing twice. Okay, and so it's a poetic device using different but synonymous words. So it's pretty much saying soul and spirit mean the same thing. Also, you think about what does the Bible say about when people die? Is it your soul that goes to heaven or is it your spirit? What happens to your soul? What happens to your spirit? Okay, so when people have died, it can be called spirits go to heaven, like Hebrews 12, 23, or in Revelation 6, 9, it says your souls go to heaven. Okay, nowhere does it ever say your soul and your spirit go to heaven. They're never put together as two separate things harmoniously going to heaven. It's interchangeable, not both. When we're talking about what happens after we die with our soul or slash spirit. 
So our spirits, when you think about what will happen after you die, your spirit will temporarily exist apart from a body. You will not have a body immediately when you die, right? Your body we know disintegrates. Your spirit or your soul goes to heaven until Christ returns. So somehow our spirit is still going to be able to worship God, be with Jesus, experience all of that without a physical body. So where do our souls come from? Let's just go a little deeper. Where do our souls come from? And maybe you've never wondered about this, but there's three different views of where your soul can come from, because apparently people have time to think about all this. But the first one is pre-existianism, pre-existianism. So it pre-exists means it existed before you were born, right? Pre-existianism. This is the soul of people existing in heaven long before their bodies were conceived in a womb, right? So the soul exists before the body. And the idea of pre-existianism is that God brings the souls to earth to be joined with a baby's body in the womb. This idea is not a Catholic view and it's not a Protestant view. Neither hold this view because it's close to the idea of reincarnation. That, that is why we, we stay away from that view. And there's actually no support in scripture that there is a soul before the body. There's just not one. And so we are not going to hold that view as evangelical Protestant Christians. So before we were in the room, we did not exist. There was no soul. Okay. The second one is called traducianism. Traducianism. And this holds that the souls, as well as the body of the child, are inherited from the parents at the time of conception. I received my body because my parents were procreating, right? And I received the soul from my parents. So this view would mean Adam and Eve's children derive their souls from their sinful parents. Because it goes, right, if our souls are sinful, we're born with original sin, did God create a sinful soul? That's the question, you see? So where did the soul come from if it's already sinful? So that's what the Judeanism believe is that the soul is derived from the sinful parents. And this could explain how sin is passed on to children without God being directly responsible for the creation of a soul that's sinful. However, the biblical arguments are actually more in favor of the third one, which is creationism. Creationism is the view that God creates a new soul for each person and sends it to that person's body sometime in conception and birth. And we know that the spirit of a child is from God, not just the creation of man and woman, because Psalm 139.12, David said, that he was knit together in his mother's room. So this was God knitting him together in his mother's room. And Zechariah 1.12 says, God formed the spirit of man within him. So it's God that forms the spirit within us. And God is the one that knits us together. So we're going to give God the glory for how we were created and our souls, even though we might resemble our parents in some ways. The fact that Adam and Eve bore children in their image could suggest that children somehow inherit a soul from their parents, but it might also indicate that God gives an individually created soul to the child, and that soul is consistent with the hereditary traits and personality characteristics that God allowed the child to have through its parents. So God's allowing the traits to happen, but God still created the soul. Theologians are on both sides of this, 
Is the soul from the parents or is the soul from God? And at the end of the day, we should just be thankful that we have a soul and that Jesus has redeemed it, right? At the end of the day, I have a soul and it's redeemed. That's all I got to really know. All right, so we're going to look now, going back to Genesis 1.27 to discover something else. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So this verse shows that we were intentionally created, what? Male and female. Our culture wants to deny that right now. That it doesn't say God just made people. We're not just made all in the image of God, but we were actually made male and female specifically, right? It's to deny our gender is an insult of the one who chose to create us to be that gender. We are all image bearers, but God is also making a distinction that he created male and female. And as I've been studying transgenderism, studying how to articulate this to individuals, here's how we have to see it. Gender is determined by our biological sex. Gender is not determined by what you think in your mind you are or what you feel, because if you have a Christian worldview, we know that the heart is deceitful, who can understand it, and our minds need to be transformed, right? It says transform our minds, renew our minds. And so whatever we think we are or feel we are cannot be the guiding principle of who we are right? Because God says, no, you are made a woman. You are made a man. And and that is what is biblical. You cannot choose your gender because you would be being deceived, right? It's a simple way of putting it. So the creation of males and females shows God's image through interpersonal relationships we have with one another. There's equality as personhood and importance. Women are just as equally important as men But there are differences in roles and authority. So I'm going to show you how that plays out in the word today. In personal relationships, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This unity is not just physical, it's spiritual. It's emotional unity that they are having together as a couple. And just as God is in community with what? The Trinity, right? All three of them are in community. This is what he wants in a marriage, in a husband and wife. And if that family is able to have children, that shows even more this idea of a Trinitarian idea of husband, wife, and children. And so this is a way we are modeling roles within personal relationships. But this does not mean everyone's called to marriage. Jesus himself was not married to any one individual because he said, what? I'm the bride of the entire church. So he wanted to be seen as the bride of the entire church, not be married. And Paul, the apostle Paul was not married, but he chose to further the work of the church and he had a lot of spiritual children. So there are a lot of people that might not get married and that is fine. It's not that a single person is not as valued as a married couple. And so we want to definitely honor those that are single and make sure we bring them into our communities for sure. Men and women are equal, I said, in personhood and importance, just as the the members of the Trinity are equal in their importance. But yet what? The Trinity, they are distinct persons. So you and your spouse, you're distinct persons. You're not supposed to be codependent. You work together, you're a unit, you're a family, but you still are a distinct person. You are equally important to God. You are equally valuable. No one should feel superior as a man or as a woman. 
And a woman shouldn't feel inferior or a man shouldn't feel inferior. So Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 12. In the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. Both depend on each other. Both are given gifts to minister in remarkable ways. Both men and women who believed were what? Baptized. This was very powerful because in the Old Testament, what was the, the way of showing you were part of the body of Christ? What did they do in the Old Testament? Circumcision. Well, we can't do that. So it was only the men. But in the New Testament, Jesus said, look, you are all equal in the body of Christ because you all can be baptized and be a part of the community of God, right? So that's, that's a very significant thing that happens in the New Testament. But there are differences in roles. And at first, this might feel uncomfortable or I don't know how I feel about this. But what we need to see is there were different roles in the Trinity. They're all God, but yet God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit have different roles. Think of this. The Trinity had equal power and deity, but the Father has greater authority. He has a leadership role among the members of the Trinity. Let's see how that happens. In creation, the Father speaks and initiates. The work of creation is carried out by the Son, and then it is sustained by the presence of the Holy Spirit. But it started with God the Father. Okay, you think about in redemption, the Father sent the Son into the world. The Son comes in obedience to the Father to die for our sins. And then when the Son ascends into heaven, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church. Different roles, but we see the Father has the authority. And so each member of the Trinity has roles, we have roles. So if humans are to reflect God's character, then we would expect some similar differences in roles among human beings. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians eleven three. he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So it's God, then Christ, then husband, then wife, according to 1 Corinthians eleven three. Man's role is like God the Father, and the woman's role is parallel to the Son. We can't be insulted by that. Jesus is pretty amazing, <laughs> right? He did amazing things. And isn't part of our vernacular as Christians, I want to become more like Jesus, right? So we, wanna, we don't say, I want to become more like God the Father. <laughs> we think about we want to become more like Jesus, right? So we want to think about that. They are equal in importance, but have different roles. There are differences in roles even before the fall when sin entered the world. Let's see that. So Adam was created first. And this is consistent with the Old Testament pattern of primogeniture, I think is the official word, primogeniture, which is the idea that the firstborn in any generation in a family has leadership in the family for that generation. So the firstborn is the leader of that generation. So then it says Eve was created as a helper for Adam. And so scripture is clear, God made Eve for Adam. God did not make Adam for Eve. Genesis 2.18 is where it says it. It is not good that the man, Adam, should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then this is stated in the New Testament too. 1 Corinthians 11.9 says, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So there's a difference of roles from beginning, before the fall. And we're going to look at how the fall affected that. 
Think about what Adam did. He named all the animals, which indicated his authority over the animal kingdom. And in the Old Testament, the right to name someone implied authority over them. So when Eve was created, did God name Eve or Adam? Adam actually named the woman. It, he first named her woman, and then later he named her Eve. Genesis 2, 23, Adam said this, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God allowed Adam to name Eve as a woman and then to name her as Eve. Now God, think about this, named the human race man, not woman. You might think, oh, it's just written like that in the King James Version that they just said man this and not man and woman, right? Why does God do that? God actually utilizes the term man to mean men and women. Okay, and so what happens if you have like a new revised standard, uh, NRSV, um, or something like that, they're going to make it men and women, or they're going to make it people, and they're going to take out the term man, right? Because why? They're wanting you to feel valued as women, okay? I want you to think about why did God do this? So God named the human race man, not women or people, okay? Genesis 5, 2 says this, he blessed them and named them man, when they were created. So that's how we know he named both of them man. And this is interesting because he labeled us both of this. So what does it mean? The Hebrew term man actually means Adam. So man and Adam are the same term. God would sometimes call Adam man. And so using the same term to refer to a male human being to the human race originated with God himself. He wanted to call us mankind. He wanted to call us that. And so we should not find it insensitive or objectionable because what he's doing is showing I created man first and we are mankind because I created man first. Theologically, here's what it suggests. Male leadership or headship in the family from the beginning of creation. Male leadership, headship of the family from the beginning of creation. He is reminding us that from the beginning of creation. And this has significance for understanding God's original plan for men and women. So once you take that out of your vernacular, because we're wanting to be more sensitive, it could change our understanding of what God's communicating in the Bible. So it's just something to consider of why God says man or mankind. God spoke to Adam first after the fall. So I think these are some convincing arguments of this. God spoke to Adam and held Adam accountable to the sin that Eve first created. Think of that. In Genesis 3, 9, he says, But the Lord God called to the man, not to both of them, to the man and said to him, Where are you? Like God didn't know where he was. And God saw Adam as the family's leader, and Adam was held accountable for what happened to the family, even though it was just him and, and Eve at the time. Adam, not Eve, represents the whole human race. If you read the New Testament, where does it say our sin came from? We're talking about sin next week, so you'll learn more of this next week. But sin came from Adam. It says there was the first Adam and there's the second Adam. Who's the second Adam? Jesus. It didn't say Eve, but she was the first one that sinned. Isn't that interesting? She was the one that convinced Adam to eat it. But yet through the whole Bible, we see that God holds the man responsible, even in the vernacular of Adam. It was a first Adam and a second Adam. It wasn't the first humans and then Jesus. He didn't take out and just put it on Eve, right? It's very interesting, or just humans in general. An example of this is 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It says, in Adam all die. 
And Romans 5.15 says, many died through one man's trespass. God's holding Adam accountable. This indicates that God has given Adam headship concerning the human race, a role that was not given to Eve. Now, what's interesting is when you read Genesis, do not eat from the tree that's in the center of the garden was given to Adam before Eve was created. So this could also mean Adam did not teach his wife the exact rules or exactly what God the Father said, and this is why she veered off. So God might be holding him accountable for not teaching his wife what God told him before she was taken out of his rib. So I can submit to my husband because I know the decision he makes, God's going to hold him accountable. And I'm free from the ramifications of it. It does not mean we can't enter in. Like there are times we have hearty discussions of the pros and cons and what are the consequences. But at the end of the day, if he makes that decision, I'd be like, okay, well, either that will be good or bad, but you're held accountable. But we still talked about it. We engaged about it. Now we're going to talk about the curse because, right, it's like, oh, but then the curse happened because there was sin. So what happened is a curse brought distortion of the previous roles. It didn't introduce new roles. It just introduced a distortion. So God introduced pain and distortion into the functions they previously had. The ground would grow thorns. And so Adam would have to toil more. The childbirth would be painful. But what's interesting, Genesis 3.16, God said to Eve, so he's talking directly to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. And we're like, ugh, that sounds horrible. I don't want him to rule over me. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So God is introducing a conflict into this relationship between Adam and Eve and a desire on Eve's part that she's going to want to rebel against his authority. And that's right. We are all independent. We want to be independent. And so he's pretty much predicting you're going to want to rebel against his authority. In redemption, in being followers of Jesus, in trying to live out what with the Holy Spirit, a right life, we can live our roles without rebellion. We can live these roles and they can be beautiful and they can create intimacy in a marriage and trust in a marriage and growth in a marriage. Colossians 3, 18 and 19 says this, wives, well, here's the word, submit to your husband's as is fitting to the Lord, as God wants you to, right? Husbands, though, what are they supposed to do? Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It didn't say command it over them, that they're just slaves. It says they are to love you and not be harsh with you. And if someone loved me and wasn't harsh with me, would it be easy to just submit to them? Yes, it's a circle. It's a cycle, right? And so this is what the Bible says we're supposed to do in our roles. When wives submit and respect, husbands are more loving and hold a servant's heart in return. The New Testament reaffirms the roles in Ephesians 5, 22 and 20 through 24. It says, wives submit, listen to this, to your own husbands. So I don't have to submit to your husband. I just have to submit to my husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And again, I would submit to you unless they're asking you to sin. Then you don't. Okay. Here's the other thing to think about. Do we have the right to have role reversal? 
Well, in the Trinity, there was never role reversal. Jesus never took on the authority that was the Father's. The Holy Spirit never took on the glory that was Jesus's or God the Father. So we never see this idea of role reversal. Husbands are not told in the Bible to submit to their wives. Think of this. The government in the Bible is not told to submit to their citizens. Masters are not told to submit to their servants. And disciples are not told to submit to demons. These are all different passages in the Bible. So that shows structure of that their submission goes in one direction. And a lot of times you're going to hear people say, especially more in a, in a liberal context or feminist group, well, we're supposed to what? Submit to one another, right? Well, they're getting that from one verse, and it's Ephesians 5.21. And it does say, submit to one another. But what they do is, what do we do? We take it out of context, okay? This is talking about submitting to the authority of the church, not within marriage. So we have to be careful. What Just because it says submit to something, what does that mean? Okay. So submitting to people in authority over you in the church. This does not mean I need to submit to somebody else's husband or things like that. Just a person in authority. And so it doesn't mean like if in a work situation, like even in my organization, I'm in crew, right? It's parachurch organization. I am equal with my coworkers that are men. I don't have to submit to their decision just because they're a man when we're trying to move forward in the mission. Does that make sense? Because he's not my husband. That's the uber conservative view is now, oh, I have to submit to any man that's ever in my life versus there is authority in the church. We submit to a pastor because he's been given authority over us versus you're on a committee. There's men and women in the committee. It's not all the women in the committee have to be hush and the men get to make the final decision. You see the difference? It's submitting just to your spouse or you submit to actual authority of the church, not just because you're working with men. But here's our sinful nature. Husbands may be selfish, harsh, domineering, or abusive. Or they could be the opposite and be passive and not take on leadership in the family. And that's not how God wants them to live out their role. And maybe you're experiencing that in your marriage or have in the past. But wives, how can we react? We can act rebellious. We could be resentful of their husband's leadership in the family. And this too is sin. So we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing at living out our role to honor God? And I want to do this to give God glory. Also, a woman can be too passive by not contributing to decision-making in the family or correcting her husband if he is wrong and in sin. So submission does not mean passively agreeing or abdicating just because he's considered an authority. So what is our purpose in life as we are people made in the image of God? We were created ultimately to glorify God, right? We are made to give him glory. We are first and foremost created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says, everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. Everyone who is called by my name. So because we were created for God's glory, our ultimate goal in life should be to live for his glory. So we have to live for his purposes, not ours, his will, not ours. And that's where we experience the joy of the Lord. It says in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So what does it look like? What does that mean to live for his glory? Forgiving others brings him glory, right? Worshiping him. Resolving conflict with others, right? He says, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled with one another before you even worship me. 
So there are, are real tangible ways we can give God glory. Not being ashamed to talk about him with our neighbors or family. So really, mainly we enjoy him by being in a relationship with him, right? Like with the prayer, with the being in the word. We, we enjoy him by being in a relationship with him. But we have been given responsibilities as image bearers. <clears throat> we are meant to be representatives of him on earth. And so think about how you represent him. Are you becoming more like him or have you misrepresented him because you've gotten angry or you had road rage or, you know, who knows, or you don't want to reconcile with this person or you are dealing with bitterness in your heart and it's showing. So we want to ask ourselves, how am I doing at being a representative of God on earth? He says that he desires to have his image fill the whole earth in Genesis 1:28. He also calls us to take care of the earth and subdue it. Did you ever think about that? You give God glory by how you take care of the earth and subdue it. That's Genesis 1, 28. We are to care for the earthly kingdom in a way that honors him. But ultimately, our responsibility is to be restoring people to him, right? Sharing the gospel with others to bring the hope of the gospel, the hope of a true relationship with the creator who knows them, loves them, and wants to make them whole. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that you not only created us in your image, but you have given us your Holy Spirit so we could become more like you. I thank you that you've created us with eternal souls so we can have a relationship with you for all of eternity, just not here on earth. I thank you that we can look at each person and realize they have a soul and that they need to hear the gospel of Jesus so that their, their lives can be eternally with you and not separated from you. God, would you help us to see each person around us, whether they appear very evil or very good, that they have souls that desperately need the gospel. Help us to take steps of faith to talk to individuals around us and to lead them to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.